Matters of Life and Death, a podcast from Premier Unbelievable. Well, hello and welcome to another episode of Matters of Life and Death. As always, I'm Tim Wyatt and I'm joined by my dad, John Wyatt. Hi, Dad. Hi, Tim. Yeah, good to be here. Um, we're going to do another, uh, tackle another round of listener questions. Thanks, as always, for everyone who's been sending those in. We do love to see some of the things you're asking about, whether some maybe some of our previous episodes or some new topics we haven't discussed before. Um, you can always get in touch with us with your questions by emailing molad, M-O-L-A-D, at premier.org.uk, or you can tweet me on Twitter. I'm at T-S-W-Y-A-T-T. Um, our first question today has come from a listener called Jessica, and she asks this, um, what should we think about the moral life of an ethicist or a theologian? The classic example might be Karl Barth or, or Jean Vanier. How does and should that affect how we approach their work, balancing things like accountability and council culture? Should we balance them indeed? It's a really interesting question because, um, you know, because I have a special interest in ethics and philosophy, yeah, I spend a lot of time over the years reading the works of various thinkers <clears throat> and their their contributions about ethics and morality. And then the question comes, you know, does it matter about their own lives? How much does their own personal lives, how much does that matter when you um, when you're reading their works? And um and is this different for um, secular philosophers who don't claim any kind of, of faith? Or is it different for uh, theologians who are claiming a personal faith? And so Karl Barth is a, a really interesting example because um, his theological works have been very, very influential 20th century. I've Probably the most sort of... influential 20th century <laughs> theologian. Yeah, I, I think he's certainly up there amongst uh, people who've been very influential, and um, you know, and I've read and continue to grapple with some of his voluminous works, the Church Dogmatics, which comes, I think, in fourteen volumes. Would you believe? <laughs> um, and and yet, you know, it it be, after his death, I think, particularly, it became apparent that he'd had this very very complex. Um, relationship um with although he was married uh there was another woman with whom he had a very intimate relationship and um and almost they seemed to have a kind of menage a trois um mm. which in, immediately raises questions about um you know how much does that affect the way you read what he wrote about love and about human relationships and about loyalty and <laughs> the nature of marriage and all these things yeah it's really interesting isn't it because you know fundamentally i guess it comes down to can you separate out the 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 the, the product of that person's mind and the the life that they that they lived and you know people always grapple with this around like you know famous things about art you know when you know about some of the horrendous things famous artists have done can we still enjoy their music their novels their paintings but i think it's even more acute when the the writing that we are discussing is as you say is about how we live well under in god with under the, in in god's kingdom how we how we what are, you know ethics is all about the good life and knowing that Karl Barth 
his own personal life fell incredibly far short of what we believe God kind of calls people towards in their personal kind of morality and holiness. It is very challenging to know, does that, should that discredit all the other stuff that they wrote, which seems on the surface to be good and faithful, scriptural and, and helpful. That's right. And <clears throat> it reminds me about an, another uh, quite well-known Christian name who um, I knew as a personal friend. He'd written a number of books. I found his <clears throat> uh, input really helpful and inspiring and insightful and spiritually significant and so on. And then there was a very public scandal when it became apparent that he'd effectively been living a double life um, and that his sexual morality was very different from what it appeared on the surface. And I was actually reading one of his books at the time when this news broke. And I, I remember vividly how, you know, I, I sort of went through this conversation in my mind. I would say, well, I, I was finding this book really helpful before I got this news. Um, does it really make any difference? The fact that he personally was struggling, you know, he was still his insights as a, as a Bible expositor and his insights into the culture all these things were still there and so I tried to carry on reading the book and yet I found I couldn't do it uh, and I found that really interesting and, I, and it was because I found myself you know saying yeah but what was going on in your mind when you were writing these words you know what I, I can no longer really wholeheartedly trust the integrity of these words because of what I now know hmm it makes me think of a, 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 a famous, slightly less significant case um, of this. Years ago, I came across when I was uh, about 10 years ago, there was a song that became very popular that came out of the Hillsong Church kind of movement. And it was called Healer. And it was all around, you know, I believe that you're my healer. I believe that you can, you know, make a way. And it was kind of touching on both kind of, you know, physical healing and also the fact that ultimately, you know, Christ is our kind of spiritual healer of our souls. Um, but what made it kind of particularly impactful in the kind of church circles I was in at the time was that the guy who wrote it and kind of performed it um, was himself uh, terminally ill with cancer. And he would come on stage, you know, pulling after himself like an oxygen tank and had a mask on and tubes up his nose. And But he was, you know, impassioned, tearful. You know, I still believe that God might still heal me and sings a song and, you know, made kind of waves in kind of charismatic world at the time. And then about six months to a year later, it all came crashing down when it turned out that actually he didn't have cancer at all. And the oxygen mask was a prop that he'd bought online and oh, he wow. had been fooling it was one of those tragic stories where, I don't know, I think he had some kind of unexplained symptoms and he couldn't get a diagnosis. So he just decided he was he felt happy about himself if he had cancer and then it got spiraled out of control. Mm, His family mm. got duped. He started pretending to be a cancer specialist, sending emails, updating the family on how long he had to live. And there was this always agonized thing about can we still sing this song, which, which seemed on the surface so so hopeful and so biblically faithful and encouraging and yet was all based on a literal lie that this guy didn't need physical healing at all mm. and um mm. yeah there was a little kind of mini it's all been forgotten about now but there was a kind of a mini crisis uh about what do we do with this song that we've all been lustily singing for an, a year and a half and now do we have to scrub it from a memory hole it like it never existed or do we actually say do you know what even though it came out of slightly maybe dubious circumstances and and it was disingenuous if you take it at standing alone, you read those words, they still are true and faithful and helpful. And so why not carry on singing? And what was the answer? Did, did people still sing that song? I don't know. I think Hillsong <laughs> removed it from the album. 
I don't think Hillsong promote it anymore. <laughs> I think it's probably still on my Spotify playlist. I think everyone will do what they will. Um, I haven't heard it in church since, but it, um, yeah. So thinking about it, there's a kind of spectrum, isn't there? Because, you know, if I take it to one extreme, I think about a scientific textbook, you know, if this or a medical textbook or something like that. If, if this um, scientific textbook is really well written and really accurate and so on um, and helpful and instructive, uh, do I really worry about the personal morality of the person of the writer? No, I don't. Uh, as long as the thing itself is reliable and helpful. But then there's a kind of spectrum, isn't there, between that and then we get into the kind of theology, ethics area where people are giving their um, thoughts about what is right and what is wrong. And and I think I think what it means, what I would say, you know, well, sorry, just to carry on. And then you get the spectrum where people, where it all depends on authenticity. It all depends on you know, the, the very nature of the work. And I think that would be applied to you, to that song, wouldn't it? When, when the very nature of the work depends on authenticity. And when it, if it turns out that that person is living a lie, then you simply cannot, um, cannot with a good conscience, um, treat it in the same way. And I think I would put sort of Karl Barth and theology somewhere in the middle. You know, it's it, it it it's clearly more than than just a scientific textbook, but on the other hand, it is it it doesn't it isn't as though Karl Barth in that book is claiming a whole lot of lies about his own personal relationship. I mean, he's writing an academic work of theology of theory, but I think what it means is that we have to treat it with a certain amount of caution. I mean, now that we know this about Bart, we have to um, treat it with a certain amount of caution. I mean, he's still a uniquely insightful theologian. I've found some of his comments incredibly thoughtful and helpful. And But I have to take into account this... And, and I think I, I would say the same about Vanier. You know, Jean Vanier... Um, was the founder of the Lash communities and they have had a unique impact across the world in terms of the care, particularly for adults with learning disabilities and so on. Many people have been moved, touched by that, that whole movement. And, you know, I uh, frequently quote uh, Vanier and, and, and the Lash work and so on. I have done in, in my previous books so it was a terrible shock when the news about Vanier came. and But I think it doesn't mean that those fundamental insights about how valuable people with learning difficulties are, about how spiritually and theologically and ethically we've got a lot to learn from them. I, I don't think that it changes, but it, but it does mean we just have to have a certain amount of caution. Yeah, I think I broadly agree. Um, for those who didn't follow the story, um, after Jean Vanier died a few years ago, it, it emerged that he had had, over many years, these kind of coercive, manipulative, abusive sexual relationships with with younger women um, uh, uh, involved in the large communities, uh, which was obviously a horrendous kind of sh- shock because his whole kind of life, had, he was kind of often held as a kind of living saint who had kind of you know, given up so much to live alongside some of these most kind of marginalized, despised individuals and, and bring them into these wonderful kind of Christian communities. So it was 
particularly difficult one, I think, even more than Karl Barth, because this is someone who didn't just write about this, but actually lived this out, we thought, in his own life. Uh, a life of kind of poverty and humility, a kind of monastic style kind of existence. And it turns out, actually, he and, and his kind of mentor, a Catholic priest, since the 50s had kind of had this playbook where they would use this kind of mystical, heretical spiritualism to try and effectively coerce women into having sex with them. So it was very destructive. And I think you can't unknow that. Like with Bart, you can't pretend, you can't put it up to one side and say, we can totally separate out the person and their output. It has to become a lens through which you read the output. I would agree that I think in these instances, we don't junk the everything that Bart or Vanier has ever done or written, but we don't un, we don't pretend that we don't know what we know. And so we, you know, when, when Bart writes about marriage, I feel like you, we should read that with the lens over it, knowing that actually his own marriage did not meet up, fell short of these standards. Sure. And and likewise with Vanier, I think it it has to colour what how we read about them. But that if we find stuff that seems to be, you know, helpful and faithful, I agree. I don't think we should we should chuck it out. It's maybe a different story if it's like you know a church planter writes a book about how to grow churches, and it turns out his church never grew at all, and it was all he faked the numbers. I think at that point you're like, well, actually. What is there of substance left if the entire work is itself untrue? Yes, and I, and I think very personal, devotional, autobiographical kind mm. of material, which then turns out to be fraudulent. Um, you know, it's just interesting, isn't it? These The tragic cases that we've mentioned just so reinforce this hermeneutic of suspicion. We've, we've talked about it before, but they just reinforce this sense of mistrust. Mm. Um, and, and, and I think, you know, it has been a unique period, um, hasn't it, for, for the, uh, the Christian community to have so many different scandals um, about apparently, um, you know, godly, uh, people. I mean, it, again, it's just interesting to review them. They're almost without exception all male. Hmm. They were all uh, senior in very powerful positions and they were fated and celebrated. And um, it just makes one inevitably more cautious about that and, and asking what is it about uh, these people that makes them so so vulnerable to uh, to leading double lives. Mm. I mean, I'm convinced that an element, not the whole truth, but an element of the story has to be something about spiritual attack or, or, or the fact that the evil one knows that he can undermine the work of the kingdom by targeting these influential, powerful people. And so I feel it's likely, you'll never know for sure, but it's likely that an anonymous person like me is not going to be placed under as much pressure or temptation or whatever you want to call it as someone who is leading an amazing church planting network or who is a super influential worship leader or, or theological writer or something like that because therefore my, you know if I fell into mm. sin and scandal it wouldn't really affect the church whereas clearly it's devastating to a lot of people when they discover that people that they've lionized as heroes that have been put on pedestals that have been held up as inspirations have revealed to be you know have feet of clay yeah and I think there is this very human but fallen desire to to have uh, heroes 
that we can say, well, you know, I struggle and I'm and I'm nobody and I find it terribly difficult. But there's somebody, there <laughs> is somebody who who has got it all right. And um and that, you know, it's understandable, it's a very human instinct, but but this desire for celebrities uh is in itself deeply flawed. Hmm. I mean I agree with you. I think, you know, you sometimes hear the response to this is like, let's have no heroes but Jesus, you know, let's have a radically kind of horizontal church, which I think there's grains of truth to it. But actually, you know, scripture does talk about, you know, look to, um, you know, we've been surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, you know, that stuff in Hebrews about the, the hall of faith, you know, all these list of names of names gone by of, 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 of people that, that the writer runs through. There is an element to which actually there is a, as an appropriate way to look at your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ and to be encouraged by their example. But it's all about holding it in, in tension with the, with the knowledge that actually they can never bear the weight of all our expectation, which has to be placed upon the person of Jesus alone. Yes, uh, I, I agree with that. But nonetheless, it is absolutely striking, isn't it, that the, the Bible as world literature is absolutely unique in the way that it constantly highlights the flaws of all its serious heroes. I mean, virtually every single one, uh, apart from Jesus, um, the narrative takes great delight in pointing out their flaws. Um, and, and and that's the contrast, isn't it, with between the kind of hagiography mm. that we get today. You know, I've often thought it was absolutely remarkable that the the writers of the scriptures you know, knowing they were writing authoritative apostolic accounts, like, you know, think of the writers of Acts, Luke is writing Acts, you know, and and then something absolutely catastrophic and completely unexplicable happens because Paul, who is the apostle of love, you know, and Agape and all that, uh, has this blinding row with Barnabas and says, I can't work with him. This is ridiculous. I'm going off. I'm going to do my own thing. And instead, Instead of Luke saying, I think I'll just, you know, I'll just draw a veil over that. There's a bit of an unfortunate bit of, you know, misunderstanding, (laughs) but hey, we're all, you know. Instead, he writes it down with, I mean, I just think it's absolutely wonderful because it gives you this sense that they, they, in other words, Luke felt it was more important to tell the truth, even if it didn't fit, even if it didn't seem right, it was more important to tell the truth than to kind of have a sanitized mm. and um, greenwashed, whatever spiritually spirit washed <laughs> uh, perspective. Yeah, and that fundamentally underlines a really important point about kind of Christian anthropology, which is that you know it is it is essential to the gospel that people are complicated people beings. And they're not all bad, but they're not all good either. And that no one is free, even the great apostles themselves. No one is completely free of the kind of corrosive effect of sin and the fall. No one, um, apart from Jesus, obviously, ever lived the kind of perfect, perfect life. Um, and and it is encouraging and helpful that that point is subtly reinforced at every stage throughout Scripture. You know, whether it's David and Moses and Abraham all the way through to the Gospels. You know, we see Peter 
being chucked under the bus numerous occasions by the gospel writers. Um, And this is the great, you know, Bishop of Rome on who I'm going to build my church. Uh, And so it's clearly something that that, that they, as you say, they they felt the truth was valuable, but also it reveals something. It underlines the kind of the, the, the truthfulness of, of the Christian view of the, of the person, which is that we're all fallen, we're all broken. And that's why we needed a savior to come. to Matters of Life and Death, a podcast from Premier Unbelievable. Shall we move on to our, our next question? Um, our next question is uh, so about something completely different. It comes from a listener called Joe. And Joe says, um, I'd love to hear your thoughts on the adoption of a child by a single person. I'm a Christian and would absolutely love my own family, but I simply haven't met the man to marry and have that family with yeah i still hope and pray it does as i'm only 33 but i'm occasionally thinking about what my life might be if it doesn't happen i know i would be a great parent and i have an amazing family and church community around me um but i also am aware that there's some christian views about children needing both a mother and a father however the world is a complicated place relationships break down tragedies occur and there are children everywhere being raised in single parent homes is not the ideal but unavoidable um, would love to hear your thoughts on about choosing to raise a child in a loving single parent home. And could that be aligned with the Christian faith? It's fascinating stuff. And I think you've got skin in the game. So why don't you, <laughs> why don't you start off? Uh, yeah, I do have quite a lot of thoughts about this for obvious reasons as an adoptive parent myself. Um, I think um, it's important as we talked elsewhere, actually about in the concept of adoption, there's a lot of things that are, suboptimal to use that language that are all fall short of god's ideal um you know in, in clearly you know i i do believe um that god's ideal is for children to be raised by their biological mothers and fathers um that is and, and actually the evidence from kind of social science increasingly suggests that's actually backed up you know that studies show that that's actually where children often do best um however we don't live in an ideal world um and there are um, you know, speaking about the UK context where we are, there are sadly thousands and thousands of children every year that are taken into care by social services because they cannot um, be kept safe by their by their birth parents. And in that context, then the question is, what does a Christian do about it? And, you know, I'm biased. Me and my wife <laughs> felt that God was calling us to do something about it by adopting, um, which we did. Um but the question is, therefore, what should does that call potentially also extend to the single Christian? And put put my cards on the table. I think yes, it can do. Um, I think uh, yes, there are. Again, the ideal the ideal might be for for Christian couples, um, married couples like me and me and Jess to to adopt together and give these children uh, two parents, two new parents. Um, but if you are a single person um, and you feel like you have space in your life and love to give and the resources and the community and the support, I, I actually think it can be a really incredibly redemptive and positive thing to say, rather than just twiddling my thumbs and waiting for a man to come out of the closet at some point um, uh, as the years go by, if you're, if you feel ready and able and willing uh, and called to this primarily i i think actually yeah i absolutely believe that god can call single christians to adopt i think it can be a when you think about the amount of good that is done by bringing children out of kind of the instability of foster care out from these abusive neglectful birth families and giving them a loving safe 
reliable, secure home in which it might only be one parent, but one parent who will lavish them with love and affection, who will heal their kind of broke emotional and physical wounds and who will raise them in faith. I think it's hard to see how that could be a bad thing, even if we acknowledge that it does fall short of God's kind of ideal plan for the raising of children. What's your take? Yeah, uh, and basically I agree. I I think having said that, I think, you know, it's hard enough being a parent with two with That's two true. parents with the child, you know, and um, anybody who's raised a child, you know, immediately the thought of what it would be like as a single parent to have that kind of 24-7 responsibility to have uh, no one to turn to. I mean, it just makes you take your hat off to so many single parents there are out there and who are managing to make a go of it under extraordinary pressure. And what it makes me think is what would be important would be to make it really work and to be safe would be to create the same kind of committed uh, network that families uh, with with you know who, who are married can call on you know so if, if you think about the fact that because you know we're part of an extended family it means that when crisis strikes you know you know there are other people out there who have got your back there are other people out there who will if necessary drop everything they're doing and come and bail you out uh even if it's inconvenient even if it's uh creating difficulties and all the rest because your prior commitment uh, because of family bonds, because, you know, as it's often said, blood is thicker than water, you know, that really matters. And so what I'd be really interested to think about, you know, if suppose, you know, there's a single uh, person who's adopting a child, a young child, um, would it be possible for her to go to her closest friends uh, and maybe people at the church and say, you know, would you covenant that you are going to be there for me and for this child till death do us part, you know, to whatever, whatever it costs. Uh, would you prepare to take on that kind of covenantal relationship? So I know in the middle of the night when this child is screaming and I've completely lost it, I know there is people I can turn to because it's almost like you need that level of safety net. You need that level of covenant commitment before you can take on that kind of unconditional uh, commitment to this child that, that you need. I mean, is that realistic or, or, or in the modern world, is that just not going to happen? I think it's, I think you've hit upon something really significant there. Um, I mean, even in our own adoption process, even though we were adopting as a couple, we had to kind of draw this kind of spider diagram of our family and support network and explain these are the people who, live nearby who could offer practical support these are the people who are going to offer kind of emotional support for us because there's a recognition that even adopting as a couple is still challenging um as sometimes more challenging than just having a birth child for various reasons and so everybody needs that support network and i'm sure that that's so the social workers sorry yeah that's part of the assessment yeah Yeah, before we even got approved we need to know demonstrate we had a support network that's part of the assessment and i'm sure that for single people that's even more 
kind of rigorous. I mean, we happen to know a handful of people who have adopted as singles and they have needed to be able to demonstrate that they have family nearby or close friends, as you say, who have could have said actively, yes, we will be here for you. We will support for you. I guess the, you're saying kind of taking it a step further and kind of embedding it within the kind of Christian understanding of covenant, um, which yeah. I guess is a bit more like what we might think of like godparents, you know, that these are non-biological related people who have submitted, said, I am for this child. I'm here for this child. I will pray for them. I will visit them. I will befriend them. I will help raise you in faith. And I think it's even more critical, isn't it? If you're a single parent, whether adopted or birth parent to have, those extra Christian people in your church family and beyond who have kind of covenanted to step into the web of people who are looking after the child. Yeah. I, I, it's, it's what's, you know, it's related to this sort of thinking I've been doing about friendship and, and the way um, and the nature of friendship in our, in our current society, because, you know, as things are at the moment, we still draw a distinction between blood relatives you know, who we expect to be able to turn to and who we expect to remain concerned and involved with us and, quotes friends, you know, because you could have someone who is a very close friend, but, you know, are you really going to ring them in the middle of the night and saying, I need help? And and also, is that friend going to say, well, I'm sorry, you know, I'm a friend, but come on, be realistic. I'm working. I've got other problems in my own life. And similarly, someone who said, "Yeah, I'm really going to be here for you, uh, but by the way, I'm I'm just emigrating to Australia, so 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 you know, sorry about that, and have a good life," kind of thing. That's the problem, isn't it, with with kind of friendship? If if it's not really something that you can rely on, and it does seem to me that the single person, even more than than people who are in a, a marriage, uh, the single person even more needs those fallbacks and 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 not just peer group doesn't it i mean you you need the equivalence of grandparents older older people who who can help and come and take part in the child care and take the child off you and 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 play that role and it's just an interesting thought isn't it would i be prepared if some single person came to me and said you know would you be prepared to be the grand person you know would you be prepared to say I'll be there for you it's a big ask but nonetheless I think probably that is the kind of 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 covenants that you would need to do this wisely Hmm. yeah I agree it reminds me I read a book recently earlier this year um, called the plausibility problem by a guy called Ed Shaw who's um, a Christian minister here in the UK and and he's same-sex attracted and has kind of committed to living uh, as, as kind of celibate single life as a result of that and and the book is really about trying to say, you know, if we want as the church to say this is what God calls gay, same sex attractive Christians to, we need to show that it's plausible. We need to show that it's not just a kind of pie in the sky dream, but that actually it can work. And so a large part of the book is him basically explaining what single people kind of need to flourish and thrive within churches and not just people who are single because they haven't found the right person, but people who have committed to a life of singleness. And and he kind of gives these interesting examples from his own church where he's a pastor um, of his own church, how they've kind of wrapped around him. And so, you know, he has, you know, married couples who he goes and spends dinner parties with, even though he doesn't have a wife or a husband to bring along. And and he has nieces and nephews, but he also has people that he's godchildren of who, and then there are, as you say, there are older kind of generation up people who kind of act as, 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 um, as kind of grandparents, godparents to him. And, and there's a, 
it was really eye-opening to me because it's as you say it's rare it's and, and it's rare for people who are not blood relatives to have made such open-ended long-lasting meaningful commitments and the and you know he says it's it's not just about having friends but it's having people who actually as you say are there for you when you're at your worst you know he says his kitchen floor moments when he's just sitting on the kitchen floor thinking i can't do this god i can't live this life i'm so lonely i i feel i feel isolated it's those people that who can pick up the phone and who will kind of gather him up in their arms and in, obviously in an entirely platonic way kind of love him back to life and and i think you know it was a really strong challenge to all churches everywhere to say actually are we building those thick friendships those thick covenantal relationships between peers and with and above and th- between generations so that single people can thrive and i think all of that applies 10 times again or 10 times over if you have a single person who's adopted or even a single person who's a, who's a who's separated from their from their child's parents and is in his raising children alone i think there's there's something something distinctive there that the evangelical church needs to grasp onto and we've got a little bit distracted by kind of our fetishization of the kind of nuclear family perhaps yeah i absolutely agree with that and and i think that it's um it's also a way in which we become infected by the zeitgeist you know mm. which is puts so much emphasis on autonomy and the idea that you would voluntarily choose to say i will be there for you whatever it takes whatever it costs i mean wow weird i mean but that's part of the reason my marriage itself is is in decline, isn't it? I mean, why would you do that? Why why on earth would you threaten your own autonomy hmm. in such a way? But, you know, asking to do that uh, for someone who's not a romantic uh, partner it, it is a big ask. But it, I think, on the other hand, you know, what an amazing witness hmm. uh, in, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a era, society, where there's such sense of relational deficit, where... Hmm. People, so many people say they feel lonely and isolated and so on. So here's, let me just uh, turn it around and, and ask. Okay, so here's a single man, and he's always wanted to be a dad, and he's really child-orientated. Would you have any qualms about that, about uh, being raised by a single dad? No, I honestly wouldn't. I think, again, the there's been a lot of social science research into into this and you know the the answers are contested but uh about whether you know children need male and female kind of influences print influences i think that is probably the ideal i think that is children thrive in that scenario but again they've they've done long-term studies tracking for example same-sex couples who've adopted children and those children don't tend to grow up you know any worse off than the children who've been adopted into um, opposite sex couples and so i clearly think um again the ideal and i think it wasn't it wasn't it's not coincidental that god set the world up to work with one man and one woman coming together to father and mother children but i do believe that um a single man as much as a single woman is just as capable of being an outstanding parent and um you know the, the key thing the, the key language that's often used in social services and adoption is is called good enough parenting which sounds kind of counterintuitive but actually it's this idea that striving for perfection means that we're all basically fall short and we'll never do anything 
we'll never we'll never get that kid out of foster care if we're waiting for perfect parents but what we what the what children need is good enough parenting it's what i had dad no offense yeah. you know <laughs> how dare it was, you son it was excellent parenting you? but it wasn't you would admit you're not a perfect father and oh, mum is not a perfect mother <laughs> and i'm not the perfect dad and and no one is but yeah. i believe that we are all good enough and i think the evidence is in and my experience tells me that there's no reason why a single man couldn't provide quote unquote good enough parenting parenting that far outstrips the the hurt and neglect that they would have this child might have had in their birth family and that is stable sustainable and lifelong that you can't get in foster care yeah and interestingly good enough parenting is also a very important concept in pediatrics because you know you've got to make this decision you know blimey you know this 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 parents making decisions for their child which I certainly wouldn't agree with and I think is pretty kooky but is it so bad that I need to step in and and or do you say well you know it's probably good enough good enough parenting so so yeah it's uh it's an important concept i i think what i what again this reinforces to me though however uh is that if you have a single sex parent the other sex friends become mm. even more important you know Definitely. so if this is a single woman bringing up a child then then access to really good male role models uh, parental care in inverted commas from lots of men would seem really important and vice versa you know if, if a single man is bringing up a child then then it seems to me even more important that there are lots of really good female carers involved uh befriending the child providing that kind of female instinctive care and all the rest and so uh i think you just have to work extra hard don't you in in the support network and looking for people who are prepared to play that role but but yeah what a, what a wonderful image and wouldn't it be great if if the church you know christian church increasingly became known you know in our society that these were those strange people who were uh, promoting you know single parent adoption uh, yeah. but in this really amazing supportive community sense absolutely i think that's my dream is that the church becomes known as the place that is so passionate about emptying out care homes and and foster foster homes that you know everyone and everyone is is trying to adopt as as, as often as possible even people for whom you know they thought the ship might have sailed for them because they never found the right man or, or people who were infertile and and people who've already got a couple of kids but found they could move into a bigger house you know i just think that would be really exciting as a witness to say we care so much about vulnerable children who need forever families of, of love that um, we're prepared to like bend the expectations of society, which has got locked into this kind of 2.5 children and a dog nuclear family and say, actually we believe God's in God's kingdom. Families come in all shapes and sizes, including single parents, including, you know, multi-generational staff, you know, all this thing. So yeah, I think that'd be really exciting. Right, should we call it, draw it to a close there? Um, we've run on a little bit longer than anticipated, but we had lots to say, which is good. Uh, I hope you found that interesting. Um, please, as I said at the start, don't, do carry on sending in your questions. We really enjoy having these occasional episodes where we tackle a few of those. You can email them in to molad at premier.org.uk or you can send them on Twitter. I'm at T.S. Wyatt on Twitter. Um, uh, there's lots of things to to read and and listen to and watch on dad's website as always that's uh, johnwyatt.com um, and otherwise we will see you next week bye-bye you've been listening to matt
Matters of Life and Death, a podcast from Premier Unbelievable.